At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit. You forced me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello and welcome back to Best in Show, the only podcast focused on the show rabbit and show KV industry. As always, I'm Bryony Smith, here with your talented and fearless co-host, Alan Messick. Alan, tell us where you've been. Hey, Bryony. Hey, everyone. It's great to be back. Episode 20. I cannot believe we are already at episode 20 of Best in Show. Um, it's been a busy, uh, pretty much two weeks here. Fairs are going, 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 and we're going to dedicate this episode to fairs and county fairs and state fairs. So I was at the Orange County Fair for the last week showing 56 Angora goats, and uh, now I'm home for a night before going off to the Sonoma County Fair in Santa Rosa to work in the livestock department for the next week before then going back to Orange County to uh, do some educational work with them on fiber for the last two weeks of the fair. So fair swing here. What's going on there in Kansas? Um, we're kind of in fair swing too. Last week, I was out at the Butler County Fair, my home county where I showed my first rabbits. Um, so I just visited. It was a lot of fun, but I got to see some of my adopted nieces show some of their rabbits. And this weekend, I'm off to the Lancaster Super Fair in Nebraska, and I will soon be off to the Nebraska State Fair as well. Wow. So we are both definitely uh, at the heart of the uh, fair season and going, going, going. And these fairs sure keep us busy. They do. And I think for a lot of rabbit people, um, fairs really have a special place in their heart because a lot of us learned about rabbits or maybe encountered rabbit showing at a fair. I know that that was true of you. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I happened to grow up in Connecticut, which is not really known for agriculture, but a mile from my home was the Durham Fair, which was, ready, brace yourselves, Connecticut's largest agricultural fair. But uh, it's, it, was a, it's, it is still a mecca for ag in terms of representation. And they happen to have a rabbit show there, and I was showing chickens at one point, and then I brought a pet rabbit, and well, the rest is history. So yeah, and I mean, think about all of our guests that we've had on this podcast. I mean, how many of them revert back to rabbits as or uh, fairs as their as their introduction? So they they do serve a purpose. And I mean, your story is not dissimilar to mine, correct? No, absolutely not. Um, I started attending the Kansas State Fair when I was about five. And I started 4-H at 7, and I kind of, you know, put two and two together that 4-Hers were the ones that had the rabbits, and I had a pet by then. So I decided that I wanted to try my hand at showing rabbits at the fair. 
and and the rest is history, right? The rest is history. And actually, there's um, a, a pretty neat story about the Kansas State Fairgrounds. I know that many of our listeners have probably been there. It's a great venue to hold breed national shows because the cage, the cage setups and the tables are all permanent. We do not have to set up coops. We do not have to tear down coops. We don't even have to clean. It's all maintained by um, inmates at the Hutch Correctional Facility. So it's very easy to put a good breed national show on there with actually kind of a skeleton crew, which I know the Kansas Dutch Club has done several times. Anyway, um, we used to be in a smaller building on that fairgrounds. It was the building across the street. It's a metal building. It's really hard to think that all of that equipment actually did used to fit into there. Um, it was really tight. The aisles were narrow. We could kind of see, you know, between the top and bottom cages. So you kind of walked around hunched over and you, you know, you had to remember what people were wearing around their midsection if you were looking for them. Um, but the fair did a study in, I think the late nineties or early two thousands, because they were wanting to make some big renovations. And they discovered that after the midway, the rabbits were the number two attraction at the Kansas state fair. And so we got a nice new barn. And that's, a lot more space. That's so amazing. It, it's it's kind of floors us who have, you know, we live and eat and breathe, you know, the rabbit industry and cave industry. So we don't even think about the the average people that walk through the fair that are that floored by rabbits. And I think when they go into a barn and see that there are so many breeds, they're they're blown away. I mean, how many times we tell people like, oh yeah, there's 50 breeds of recognized rabbits in the United States, and that's not even that's just in the United States. I mean, talk about Europe, there's even more. And um, some of the fairs like the Georgia State Fair with the Humphleys, we've talked about them before, how they have a breed display every year and 50 breeds are represented. And I mean, I've seen the people, I'm sure you've seen them too, where they're just like, whoa, what's that? Whoa, they come in all these different sizes and fur types and wool. And oh my God, is that a cat? You know, they're, they're blown <laughs> away. So it, it's no wonder that you, we step back and think about it, that you guys got a brand new facility at that at the Kansas State Fair because the rabbits really are a draw. Yeah, they are. And our shows are on Saturdays. The open show is the first weekend of the county fair. It's an open and youth ARBA sanctioned show. The 4-H show is the second weekend of the of the state fair. And it, by around, you know, 11, 12, there are a lot of spectators in there. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes I wish it was one of those fairs where, you know, the barn is closed um, because it can be hard for the 4-Hers to make it up to the table. Or, you know, I've had to tell people, stop, you cannot pet this rabbit on the best in show table, <laughs> you know, shut the coop door, you know, later you can pet a rabbit, but not right now. Um, and the staff at the fairgrounds, which we have volunteers who come to staff and run rabbits, they're really helpful in answering questions the public has when they, you know, sometimes we'll try to interrupt the judges because they come right up to the table at the rabbit show, unlike, you know, like a cattle show where the judge is in the middle of an arena. Um, so, it, I mean, it's it's an exercise in PR sometimes, but it is good to see that interest. I think we've all, as judges, uh, have chased a few people out of behind our tables <laughs> while judging a fair. We're like, uh, you guys, uh, sorry, we're judging back here. But you're right. It, it is our judging is a lot more in your face when it comes to, you know, being in the public's eye uh, during a fair, if the judging is happening during the show. And have you, ever, you know, you talked about the Kansas State Fairgrounds and how really a catalyst, what that facility has been towards our entire industry and how many national shows every year are held at the Kansas State Fairgrounds because of that incredible building and the fact that the equipment is permanent. Like they don't tear it down. It doesn't go flat. It's up there. Um, when you think about 
the fares and and having judging and all that, you know, cooping, which sometimes is a deterrent to see some people showing affairs. Like you don't want to take your best rabbits to the fair because, you know, might get stolen or, you know, who knows, somebody else is taking care of it. Um, have you been a prano pup or some cotton candy? Yes. Or, you know, some beer on a, on a late uh, Friday night <laughs> after the concert. We've, we've all, we've all experienced that. Um, have you been to fairs where they do a carry in and carry out show for the rabbits or cavies? So they just come in one day. Um, sometimes I've seen that happen, particularly when it's really hot. Um, and things have changed a bit with COVID. Um, I have shown at the Iowa State Fair and they are cooped, but it's for a shorter period of time. Um, I think I came in on Friday and then I was able to leave a little bit earlier on Sunday since I was out of state. Um, so they're cooped for a shorter period of time. And, you know, the owners provided all care at the Kansas State Fair. Actually, the staff provides all care. The rabbits are free fed, which is kind of a sticking point for some. And um, they're watered. They're cared for by the staff. So you can just, you know, drop your rabbit off, leave it, come back and pick it up after the show, and everything will have been taken care of for you. Um, So most fairs that I've attended have had at least some period of cooping. Um, but of course, with heat and with COVID, um, there have been some years at county fairs in Kansas where I, as the judge, have been, you know, given the call to dismiss rabbits if the heat is excessive after the show. And I've said, yes, take them home, <laughs> take them yeah. home. That's totally smart. And I'm sure the exhibitors really appreciate that and the breeders especially, too. Um, have you been to some of those fairs where they're kind of a modified version of cooping where, you know, maybe if you win a best of breed, you're required to keep that there or uh, and the rest they, they allow you to take home? Um, you know, I don't think any that I've attended have been that way. Um, but there have been things like, you know, Grand Champion Row and things like that, where the winning animals are then moved to different coops so they can be on display um, with their awards. Right. Out here, you know, we, we have really hot summers like you do, too. Um, and some of the fairs have shifted to a carry in, carry out, you know, single day show. I think the Monterey County Fair and the Orange County Fair, which we're going to talk about with our guests today, they do a carry in, carry out show. And the Orange County Fair has actually gone to a double show. They they partner with us with our CRCS half, so exhibitors can come in. They can show uh, the fair show. They can earn premiums, which are ten dollars for first place, which is pretty darn cool for rabbits that don't even have to stay there longer than just being judged. Um, and then they have the option to uh, join the CRCS half and you know get legs and points on you know two shows. And and they have doubled or tripled their their entries when they when they do that because it's a lot more attractive of course to exhibitors don't have to leave them and they do it in the, in the livestock arena so that the passerbys of the fair gets get to kind of watch it and they don't understand what's really going on um, as we're speaking our foreign rabbit language but um it certainly has created a bustling area uh at least for the day you know at the fairs when they when they do that it's pretty cool that's really interesting. Um, that's it's that's very different from the Kansas State Fair. Um, like I mentioned, they do have an open show that's ARBA sanctioned, but um, a lot of breeders who regularly attend ARBA shows, because of that length of time that they're cooped, a lot of times they don't take their best animals or they only take animals that they want to sell because the fair does handle all sales and manages that for the exhibitors as well. Um, and then we get a lot of people that don't show anywhere but the state fair. So you get some, like, you know, hobby breeders and things like that who maybe don't show at ARBA shows. So it can be kind of an interesting mix of rabbits sometimes. Well, that's a good point. You brought up the sales program. So that's something that you experience at other fairs um, throughout the country, including the Kansas State Fair? Yeah, there are some in which, um, you know, animals are listed for sale and then an interested buyer will, instead of, you know, contacting the owner, will go to the fair office and make that purchase and the fair handles all of that. 
And then the fair, um, do they take a commission from whatever is, you know, whatever the asking price is? Um, the last I knew it was like a dollar. <laughs> wow. But but to, to my knowledge, most of them take a small cut. I work at the Alameda County Fair in the summer. And I run their small animal department. It's a month long. And the fair takes 20% of the, um, you know, the, the revenue. And it's, it's really a quid pro quo kind of arrangement because – First of all, you know, fair gets a little bit of profit, helps offset some of the extensive costs for, you know, the air conditioning, the building and our new cages. But it's also attractive to breeders who otherwise don't really want to take their rabbits to the fair that they get the chance to, you know, bring them there and they get to sell them. So the barn is actually fuller than it probably would have been if it was just, you know, a show alone. So there is some incentive there. And I, I think that that's, that's pretty brilliant on fair's part to, to think about that. Um, and take a profit, but then also it's like an incentive to the breeders to, hey, fill the barn up and, and make it full when otherwise a lot of people are like, oh, I don't really want to bring my rabbit to the fair. So it's that's a cool thing. I didn't realize it was going on in other parts of the country. Yeah, and it really does facilitate um, kind of as an easy entrance to people who maybe want to get into rabbits. Um, so the, um, you know, the release dates are the same, but you think, you know, hey, I want to give this a try. So you go to the office, you purchase your rabbits. And then, you know, maybe you go home and prepare some cages or whatever for them if you've not owned rabbits before. And then you go back on release day and pick up your new rabbits. And it it kind of makes that process easy, you know, and it's no pressure. You can go look around, um, look all up and down the aisles as long as you want and find whatever you want. Um, so, you know, there is a benefit to being able to talk to breeders and ask questions about a breed. But on the other hand, um, it's really it's no pressure sales and you can kind of shop as you like. Yeah, and I bet the the breeds are organized by, or those sale rabbits are organized by their breeds. So it's not like just you know walking through, you know, a, a salad bowl. In other words, so if they're looking at Dutch, the Dutch for sale are going to be mixed in amongst the Dutch that are that are just there for show. So um, people probably figure out on their own whether they're not whether they're familiar with rabbit showing or not. That wow, these are different breeds, and I kind of like that one, so I could you know look for ones for sale in that in that Dutch aisle. If we're going to use Dutch as, as an example, so. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty, pretty smart. Yeah, it, it's really, um, it's the best PR that we have for this hobby, I think. And it gets us out in front of the public more than really any other initiative. So it's still um, a valuable event for a lot of people. Heck yeah. All right. Well, I think we've got some listener comments that, that have rolled in um, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Brian, you want to take the first one and I'll take the second one? Sure. We got a note from Kendall Bledsoe, who's an ARBA judge. He says, loving the podcast. Just got caught up on the Glenn series, and I'm starting the Sander episode. I have to say that after listening to all these episodes, I think you guys have reignited my spark to do more for the hobby. So awesome. And maybe we could give a little nod to the the DSA challenge that we've still got going that, you know, uh, we're inspiring everyone to, you know, thank and, and give give that moment to that, that everyone that those hard workers deserve for all their dedication throughout the year. So if you're kind of re-inspired, you know, think about those ones that have inspired you and, and consider filling out a DSA or distinguished service award application through the ARB website and nominating those, those individuals who work really hard for all of us. Um, like, like Kendall has said that those people that he listens to on our podcast that have inspired him. So think about those as you uh, go throughout your summer and, put together these applications. We are going to challenge you guys to nominate those uh, dedicating souls of our industry. And we're going to highlight those as uh, as they come through and are approved by the ARBA. 
And all right, I've got one more comment comes from Apple Podcasts, actually. So reminder to everyone that you can drop your comments and your five-star ratings. We would really appreciate it on whichever platform you listen to Best in Show, whether that's Apple, Audible, Spotify, or Google Play. But uh, this comment comes from Apple Podcasts, and it's from username JDog141. And uh, the comment goes, a great mixture of American Rabbit Breeders Association history and what's going on in today's rabbit world. A wide range of topics from our longest active judges all the way down to KVs. Brian and Alan cover it all. So thank you, Kendall. Thank you, JDog141, for your comments. And we'd love to hear more. So our guests are certainly encouraged each and every week to hit that five-star wherever you listen to us and drop your comments. Or you can always email us at podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. Again, podcastbestinshow at gmail.com to send us your comments if you uh, otherwise don't drop them on the platform which you listen to Best in Show. And also a reminder to like and follow and share the rabbitry on Facebook. That will continue to be our hub each and every week when we drop our latest episode of Best in Show and for links to uh, past episodes. So these episodes are becoming uh, sort of archives for our industry. And if you've missed out, it's not too late to listen to those just by going to the rabbitry and scrolling down. You're going to see a link to every single episode all the way up until this one and many more in the future. So again, like follow and share the rabbitry on Facebook. I was actually at a show this weekend and I heard several people say that they had caught up on episodes as they were driving to the show, which is a perfect time. I have some podcasts that I like to, you know, build up and then binge when I'm on my drives too. Definitely. I think we're going to see some binging when it comes time for a convention and everyone's hitting the roads to uh, Louisville later this year. I think we're going to have some listeners that are going to be pulling those late night hours across the freeways and highways and interstates across the country to make it way, make our way to the, uh, the big win this, uh, this October. So lots of binging coming up and hopefully lots of more, lots more people to listen in on best in show, whichever episode you happen to, to jump in on or catch up on. Well, it's time to introduce our guests from the Orange County Fair. Alan, can you tell us a little bit about who we'll be hearing from today? Yeah, I'm super excited this week to interview two people that I've got to know very well over the last almost 20 years at the Orange County Fair. It's a fair that I know first as uh, an Angora goat exhibitor, but uh, later on I, I got involved in kind of helping them promote the, the rabbit side of things. And Orange County is a very interesting um, place because it's Orange County. We've all heard about Orange County housewives, and well, that's not actually too unlike how the population of people is down there. And it's not very far from Los Angeles. It's a very fast growing urban society where agriculture is kind of a foreign subject, but this fair has been going on for many, many decades. And, and they keep continuing to adhere to that fair um, love and passion, which is to preserve ag traditions. And Dr. Miller, who is a professor of agriculture at uh, California State uh, Poly tech in Pomona joins uh, her other co-host or co-superintendent, Nick Kyler, who basically grew up there at the fair. And they talk about some of the challenges they face and how to, how they continue to bring ag uh, representation to an area that otherwise is pretty bleak when it comes to it. So we're going to roll right into that. This week, we're interviewing our guests from the Orange County Fair in Costa Mesa, California, at uh, one of the United States mega fairs. And I'm going to have our guest exactly describe what a mega fair is. But the Orange County Fair qualifies as a mega fair in the United States. Uh, this is known as one of the most visited fairs, with one million guests passing through the gates 
over a five-week annual fair. There are a few county fairs in the United States that have seen as drastic a societal shift from agriculture to urban than the Orange County Fair. And there are no two people that are as familiar with this transformation than our guests today, Dr. Kim Miller and Nick Kyler, Livestock Managers at the Orange County Fair. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. We're great. <laughs> Happy to be here. These guys are really busy. It's been a busy week. I'm here. I stink like goats because I've been sharing my Angora goats here at the Orange County Fair, and it's a fair that I love. It's very near and dear to my heart. It's very far from where I live, but I come down and make the Hajj every year because these guys make it um, a fun event and one worthwhile for all of our Angora goat friends. So while our show is over, I showed yesterday. Today, I'm shearing goats, and I smell like a goat, so I apologize to you guys both for the, the stinky Angora. It's very authentic, very fair authentic. Oh, and I probably smell like a a double cheeseburger that I just bought up there is just dripping with fair goodness. Um, so we're going to take a moment to introduce our guests. And again, thank you both for taking time out of your super busy schedules. Here it's a Sunday at the Orange County Fair, which means you've got a changeover coming up. Exhibitors are going to be leaving. And then you've got uh, two days of blackout days to get ready for your next wave. And it ain't over yet because then you got another one coming in right after that. So uh, Dr. Miller, tell us uh, about your position here and what you do when the fair is going on and maybe what it's not going on. And then of course your long-term relationship with the Orange County Fair. Uh, my title is livestock supervisor here at the OC fair. Uh, this is my fifth year skipping the COVID year. Um, one of my main responsibilities is just to make sure that our guests are happy and that our uh, employees are doing what it is that they are supposed to be doing and just overseeing reporting to administration um, but essentially just overseeing the livestock area. Um, my time or my history with OC Fair uh, is very long. Uh, I was an exhibitor here in the mid 80s when I was in high school. I showed all the livestock species when I was in high school. And then I left and obviously went off to college and became an agriculture teacher. I taught high school agriculture for 15 years, and all of those 15 years brought high school students here to the fair for various competitions, not just livestock, but for various competitions. And I am just starting my 11th year as a university um, faculty member at Cal Poly Pomona. Very cool. And I think you would agree that you this fair has been a part of you for many years, and it's probably um, influenced a lot of your pathways uh, in your life professionally as well. Absolutely. That's absolutely true because growing up in high school and showing animals, uh, you you get very attached to what's going on here. And this is one fair that you can get very attached to and kind of never want to leave in one way or another. Um, but in different capacities, it's a lot of fun to go from an exhibitor and see what the fairgrounds and the livestock area was back when I was a high school student and then to see it as an advisor. And now the changes that I'm seeing when I come in the summers for um, my position as livestock supervisor. It's a unique position that I think we wish any, anyone that works behind the scenes in admin at a fair, whether it's in the livestock department or maybe even upper admin, <laughs> we wish some of our exhibitors had that that grasp because it's so much greater than just opening the doors that day for the show and then going home. It's it's much bigger and so much more thought has to go into a million other things. Um, next, we're going to introduce our other guest this this afternoon. That's uh, Nick Heiler. He's uh, a year-round staff actually here at the OC Fair, and he has a very unique story about his connection to the fair and how the heck he got started in this. So I'm going to hand it over to Nick to tell us all about that. 
Well, I have some family ties to the fair. Um, my grandma's worked here for over 50 years. My mom used to work here. My uncle used to work here. Um, I kind of chose my own path, though, coming in as a volunteer in 2012 to get some high school hours for volunteer service. And that eventually led into a position here at the fair in the livestock department. Um, through the years, I've slowly worked my way up to now being supervisor with Kim. Um, but I do work here on a year-round basis, uh, doing ed educational ag programs at Centennial Farm. And then I really do a lot of the livestock programming during the fair, um, pre-fair, with uh, coordinating all the competitions and contracting our exhibitors for the fair, just getting the overall programming together before Kim can, Kim can step in and kind of help me run the ship once the fair begins. Nick is definitely the backbone of what we do here at the livestock area at the OC fair. Well, and what Nick has not said, I'm going to drag it out of him, but Nick, you did not grow up in livestock. You did not grow up on a farm. You didn't grow up too far from this fairgrounds here in Costa Mesa, which is a, a bubbling, bustling city. So um, how does a, how does a kid growing up in like an urban environment come to run a livestock department at a fair and do livestock every day of his life? Well, I've always been interested in animals. I was actually a member of 4-H. Um, my grandma's position here, she was actually, um, there used to be a 4-H dedicated building on site and she was the 4-H, she was the manager of that building. So she wanted me involved in 4-H when I was younger and I always wanted to raise livestock, but obviously there was nowhere that I could do that here. I did raise KVs for a little bit. I actually never ended up showing though because they weren't show quality KVs. But um, so... Fast forward when I was able to get my volunteer position here and eventually as a paid staff member or during the summer in 2010, um, I thought it was a great opportunity to be able to kind of explore some of those interests that I had in agriculture. And I've been working here every summer since this will be my 12th fair, including my virtual summer that we worked in 2020. Um, I did end up going to Cal Poly Pomona and being one of Kim's students and getting my bachelor's in agricultural science. And then I've been full-time here for about three years now. So That's pretty cool. And I remember I've been coming to this fair for almost 20 years. And I remember probably your first fair, you were selling alfalfa and straw every morning at 7 a.m. And uh, I was one of your first customers there in the morning. Um, so let's let's dive into what's actually going on here in Orange County because um, – for those that are not familiar geographically with Orange County, we are not very far away from Los Angeles. I mean, it's the next county north. Um, you could drive there in probably 20 minutes, and it's a it's a different environment. But so too is Orange County. So, Dr. Miller, you grew up in this county, did ag for years, still do ag. You know, you want to give us a little lowdown on on Orange County, past, present, um, maybe in a little bit of foresight of the future when it comes to ag in one of the least ag areas in the country. Well, actually, southern, the entire Southern California area, the southern part of the state, is one of the most diverse and economically abundant or, um, yeah, abundance a good word, uh, agriculture areas of the state. It's, it's kind of little known. We're known for our horticulture and our floriculture. And of course, if you go way south in the state to the Imperial Valley, that's where all of our lettuce and all of our melons come from. The agriculture that comes out of the Imperial Valley is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So it is kind of a misnomer that Southern California is not agriculture, when in fact we contribute a large part of the gross 
domestic product of agriculture right out of the Southern California area. As far as Orange County goes, if it's not obvious, Orange County is named Orange County, not only because of its orange groves, but <clears throat> pardon me, little known fact, a lot of Orange County was ostrich farms a long time ago, 1800s into the early 1900s. So it was a farming mecca. A lot of orange groves were taken down in the late 40s and the early 50s for Disneyland. Um, Knott's Berry Farm, of course, was an actual working berry farm. And then so many people would show up on their travels north and south to California and out of California to go to move to travel east, if you will. Um, and they would stop at the Knott's Berry Farm to not only pick berries or to purchase berries, but also to enjoy chicken dinners. That's what they're known for. So our two biggest amusement parks in Southern California, in Orange County, are actually agriculturally grounded as well. So oranges, uh, orange groves, ostriches. Uh, we have a, a whole history. We were handed a, a massive box of historical documents just this year alone um, that outlines all of the competitions that they used to have here at the OC Fair, but back then called the Orange County Fair. Um, and there were no rides. And there were food booths, but they were all local food booths, pies, desserts, canning, all of those culinary competitions that they have now. Um, but the the base of the of the point of a fair was for farmers from far away to come together and collaborate on their livestock, on their uh, products, on their cooking, and then, of course, the judging. And it's kind of grown up, and not kind of grown up, but fairs have developed uh, in a way that they've become more, uh, we need to make money. So the rides come in to entertain guests who are coming to see the livestock and coming to see all of the competitions, the home goods, uh, the sewing, the food, the culinary. Um, but I think in regards to agriculture, the rides and the point of making money for fairgrounds has started to overshadow some of the points of having a fair, which is to showcase your livestock. So it is fantastic that we have what we have here, but I feel like we're at a turning point now where we are bringing to light still the importance of agriculture. This is Orange County, and we are deep in agriculture in Southern California. So I think we're at a turning point now where people are looking to canning their own foods, fresh fruits and vegetables, and this is our opportunity to bring back to light the importance of agriculture in everyone's life. Well, you bring up a really good point. And I think that you're going to be exposed to it before a lot of people in that maybe going back to ag. I've noticed in the last year with COVID, for example, um, I had a lot more requests for people wanting Angora goats and rabbits for their backyard because they were leaving the city and they were going to raise their families in a in an environment that they've only dreamed about. So do you think that we might see a shift maybe as a cause of COVID for a return to ag and, and heritage? I absolutely do. And we see that at the university too. A lot of students who maybe are not plant science majors or animal science majors wanting to take a few extra agriculture courses because they've started a backyard, they've started a backyard garden or they want to grow more of their own fruits and vegetables. Some of the courses that I teach are uh, open to all students all across the university. So it brings together all of the students from all of the majors and really opens their eyes to what they can do 
for themselves to feed themselves and to preserve foods for later. So in the case of COVID, the grocery stores all of a sudden got ransacked and there was no food. Um, but I myself, I had tomatoes. Now, you're not going to survive on tomatoes, but at least I had some of those fresh vegetables that I enjoy because I had raised them myself and I wasn't solely depending on the grocery store. There, We are seeing also a huge influx of middle school and elementary schools starting to put in school gardens uh, and incorporate more agriculture education into their curriculum. And I'm sure Nick can talk more about that in regards to the Centennial Farm Program that he runs here at the Orange County Fair. And I think that program is so important to continuing to inspire individuals to know more about agriculture here in Orange County, even when the fair is not around, because Centennial Farm is such a beautiful facility to learn at and from. It, it is a gorgeous fairgrounds, and I definitely have a, some questions geared towards Nick um, a little bit later and to talk about that year-round farm uh, that's it's, it's, it's beautiful and so unique and then has a really important role in this community and, and culture down here. Um, so, Nick, what does a county fair mean to you? And now that you've worked at, at this fair for almost 15 years and you've been coming here since you were a little kid, what do you think county fairs, what do they mean to you and, and what do they mean to those that come here as exhibitors? Well, obviously the highlight for me at the fair has always been the livestock on the farm. I think growing up in Orange County, that's something that you don't get to see every day. So when the fair season rolls around, it's kind of a highlight for me to be able to get to see something that I don't get to see every day. Um, but it's, it's our, we call it our biggest summer party. It's something that we look forward to every year and it's a community outreach opportunity and it involves so many different groups of people that get to come here and showcase different things that they get to do um, that people don't get to see year round. And um, we get to touch a lot of different parts of our community, whether or not it's people in home arts that get to show off their woodworking projects or um, different items like that. But I think the core of what a fair means to me is a lot of the exhibits and all of that stuff. And, I think sometimes as the fairgoers, you we you get a little bit, the exhibits get overshadowed by all of the rides and the food and the parade of products and all of the stuff that you can buy and the entertainment. But the core uh, for me is really the exhibits and what the community is bringing to the fair. And what about you, Dr. Miller? What does is, what is the county fair mean to you? Not just Orange County Fair, but what do county fairs mean in the in the big you know, personally, but then also on a broader, on a broader scale. Well, I would, I would echo what Nick said. Uh, what I also appreciate, especially this year is uh, so many families wandering around, enjoying their time together. Uh, and always so grateful every year that I've worked here, I've had strangers come up and ask just very simple questions that I take for granted, knowing the answer to, but remembering that these individuals don't know it. They'll call a goat a sheep. They'll call a steer a cow. They'll call a chicken a rabbit. They won't do that. But they are not knowledgeable of all those terms. And to spend five or 10 minutes with somebody, they're ever so grateful. They walk away a little bit more knowledgeable, um, talking with their kids about what they learned, uh, what they saw. So I always just appreciate the fact that people can come here and they can learn about agriculture specifically in our area. And just the families getting getting to get out and fresh air and coming and seeing everything that uh, goes into a county fair. 
and after a year away, there's <laughs> I think people are knocking down the doors to come in and have that experience. Um, Dr. Mill, you taught ag at a high school level, and now you're a professor of agriculture at the university level. What does it mean to kids to, you know, quote, go to the fair or to go to fair? Uh, coming to the fair was always a highlight. As I said earlier, um, animals are always raising the livestock and then having the coming to the fair being the, the capstone experience of raising that animal is always exciting. But I always encourage my students to also enter other exhibits. Uh, the, Nick mentioned the woodworking. I had students that would enter woodworking, photography, sewing, quilting. So to bring kids to the fair is to give them as much experience as possible uh, to prepare them. It takes a long time. They've got to own the animals for a certain amount of time. They've got to prepare those animals. So it's not just going out and feeding an animal and then taking it to the fair. It's the exercising and the working and the camaraderie between all of the exhibitors uh, and then bringing them here, but also inspiring them to go out and see what else is happening in the fair and hopefully instilling with them an importance to continue to participate. I have a couple of students that have continued to uh, submit photographs and woodworking and they've been graduated for 10, 12 years. So to instill the fact that the fair is important, even if you've moved on from those times when you had that opportunity to, in this case, show an animal at the fair. Well, and I think that brings up another good point. Um, and maybe from your perspective, you could talk about this, that it's a bit of a misnomer that if you're an FFA, you have to be doing animals. But maybe you could talk about, maybe give a plug for FFA or 4-H and Grange, that it doesn't always mean having animals to be a participant of the fair. And you, and you definitely um, gave a nod to some of those activities that you can do. But tell, I mean, I didn't do FFA, unfortunately. I didn't have the opportunity where I grew up. I wish I had, but I've learned a lot now looking back, like you didn't have to just have, you know, a market steer to be able to participate. So you want to talk about that and and maybe inspire some of our listeners or maybe leaders, uh, maybe other FFA teachers about how to get their kids, their students involved in this. Sure. There's a, in the competition guides, there's always the list of all of the competitions that you can participate in. Um, to give you a couple of examples, to raise an animal does cost, it's a little bit of money and it's a lot of time. So I had a lot of students that in FFA, you have to have some kind of project. The three circle model of the FFA is classroom, project, and FFA, participation leadership, if you will. So all students have to have a project. So I would have students when I was teaching high school that would come to me and say, I really want to participate in the fair, but I can't afford an animal. Um, or they'd say, I really want to be involved with the animals, but I can't afford an animal. If they could spend the time, if they could dedicate the time, we'd figure out a way to fund it for a student. But if we had a student that just wanted to come by a couple days a week and interact with the animals, and they still wanted to participate in the fair, one great example is I had a young lady, and she would come, come and work at the farm with all of our students who had sheep and she would take pictures of all of the sheep. And so each year she would enter some of those pictures of her fellow students with their sheep. One year she got like third place in her division. We all went over to the award ceremony. We all cheered the loudest and she didn't have to have money to participate in the fair and she didn't have to commit the morning and night to take care of that animal, but she still got to be a part of the livestock team that I brought uh, with me to the fair. And I have a lot of other fantastic uh, stories just like that. The woodworking and the canning. I was a student who was a cook. 
I, well, not an official cook, but she liked to cook. So she would enter in some of the culinary divisions. She had no idea. She actually raised a lamb and then continued to raise animals, but also participate in the culinary division. But I would also give a nod to a program that's here and maybe turn it over to Nick if we can about the opportunities that uh, 4-H members can see in a uh, event called Imaginology. And there's so much diverse interaction there that does have to do with livestock and doesn't have to do with livestock. So, Yeah, so our two main events that the fair produces during the year, we obviously, we're an event center, so there's a lot of events that take place on our property throughout the year, but the two main fair produce events are the Orange County Fair during the summer and then our Imaginology event um, that takes place in the spring sometime in April. And that program is um, a free community give back program. It's a a weekend where it's all revolved around youth and how we can showcase different things that are interests of youth. And we did a rebrand a couple of years ago. It was previously called Youth Expo. And when we rebranded to Imaginology, we took on the uh, model of STEAM. So science, technology, engineering, um, arts, math. Um, we also use the A as agriculture because being an agricultural district, we want to be able to always showcase ag. So um, 4-H plays a big role in what we do at Imaginology. Um, a lot of it is driven by them. So we provide this event as an opportunity for them to be kind of, sort of showcase what they want to be able to showcase. So um, it's kind of like a mini fair before they get to come to the fair where a lot of them get to show livestock, but they also get to show off other projects. And we do um, different events here. Um, they've recently been involving like video game competitions that are really attractive for kids. And um, there's always a science fair and um, different activities like that. And a lot of schools come since it's a Friday through a Sunday. Um, we get busloads of kids that come on Friday, considering it's a free event and schools are able to just come here and bring all the kids that they want for the day and enjoy what we have to offer. So in a way, you could be grooming potential youth to participate in the fair later that year because Imaginology takes place in the spring. You said April. So some of these kids must be like, well, this is really cool. I could, I can continue to do this. Wait, there's another event. Do you, do you find that you have kids partaking in Imaginology and then seeing them again at the fair? Yeah, I think that it gives an opportunity because since the fair is a paid event that you have to come to a lot of these school kids that come during imaginology maybe it's their first time being exposed to 4-h and stuff like that so um it kind of gets kids interested in seeing what other opportunities there are out there and then the potential to get them involved and come back at fair and especially with competitions like small animals and stuff like that that don't require as much of a com time commitment as some of our larger livestock it gives them a chance to get enrolled in projects like that and hopefully be able to come to the fair that's so cool. Um, Nick, in your experience, I mean, you've been working at this fair a long time, but I know you're familiar with other um, fairs in Southern California. Um, how have other county fairs in Southern California changed over the years in terms of their relationship with livestock and small animal shows? Um, and, and what's different about the Orange County Fair, which has been adhered to preserving those traditions? And you want to talk about some of the other fairs and, and what's going on in this really fast-changing Southern California culture? Yeah, so um, a lot of the fairs in Southern California, I mean, each fair is tasked with its own 
challenges and opportunities um, depending on the region that they're in. Um, the main fairs that we have around here that we kind of collaborate with are LA County Fair, Del Mar Fair, and Ventura Fair, which I would say that the, are those the three that we sort of compare ourselves with. Um, a lot of those, excluding LA, I would say have a lot more opportunities to promote agriculture. Um, Del Mar has an amazing facility that they can use down there. Ventura has a lot of support from their farming community um, that we don't have necessarily in LA and Orange County. And obviously LA has not had any livestock programming as far as competitions for a long time. They just do some static exhibits during the fair to promote agriculture, but they're not involving any of the breeders or 4-H or FFA competitions. So I would say it's been a struggle for fairs to continue to have to kind of rebrand themselves and figure out ways that they can still keep these programs up with also from the public's perspective as they're get more removed from agriculture as these areas become more urban um, trying to get them to understand why these programs are still important and um, and get them to learn about what we do with them. That's a really good point. It's actually kind of leads into the next question I have for you, Dr. Miller. And that's, um, you know, without these county fairs that support kids in agriculture, what have you seen in these kids or what do you suspect we will see in areas like this where the kids, not like kids that are in Orange County involved in this fair, but in areas where we, where those kids don't have opportunities to, to learn about agriculture, if you could have a crystal ball, what, what societal impacts do you see when you look at those kids that don't have any and won't have any exposure to agriculture by going to a county fair that has animal competitions, uh, growing competitions, whatever it is? Well, I have firsthand experience with that working with uh, young groups of elementary school students. And it's, and a lot of people have experienced this fellow teachers. Uh, you meet with an elementary group and you say, where does your milk come from? Where do your eggs come from? And they will gladly raise their hand with enthusiasm and say the grocery store or dad brings them home. Um, and so just it, it, trying to just help them understand a chicken lays an egg and this is the egg that then is put into a carton. Um, there's a lot of fantastic small programs, small hobby farms that are popping up uh, in the area that have uh, farm camps uh, so that students can learn where it is that their food comes from. I think that's key when young elementary school, little kids, if you will, we keep, we use the, keep using the term kids. Um, if they could understand better where their food comes from, then hopefully we could nurture them or inspire them to want to continue to learn more and get more in depth as they go through middle school, high school, and then into the university about where their food comes from and how they personally can contribute to the food uh, that everyone eats uh, and maybe get into some sector of agriculture to provide food for communities. I think that's a great point. And I, I, I always say like, okay, if kids are, maybe they're going to raise a pygmy goat and they're not going to have the market steer or they're not going to, maybe they're going to show guinea pigs and they're not going to show the market lamb at least and it. Maybe it was only for a year, but that was their exposure to ag. So they're going to grow up to be at least less aggressive towards agriculture than someone that grew up knowing nothing about it or thinking that their milk came from the grocery store. So 
the, which those unfortunately those types of people then grow up to, you know, make a lot of laws <laughs> which prevent us from feeding them. It's 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 really tricky, um, and really scary at the same time. So uh, Nick, you know, we don't have a lot of livestock living in Orange County anymore. We've got, as Dr. Miller said, we've got a lot of plants, a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables, but. Um, when it comes to your livestock shows here that you put on every year, I mean, there are people this week, for example, that have come down from Oregon to show. So how do you attract exhibitors to come to the Orange County Fair every year and, and participate with their entries, specifically with with large or small animals? Um, when I took over the competition side of things, I first started with large animals. And then eventually, as I took over kind of the department as a whole, and taking over all of the competitions. Um, I think that we were seeing a severe decline in our entry numbers. Um, and me being so passionate about the livestock department, it was um, kind of a challenge for me to figure out how I can turn this around and and build up those entry numbers. I, I made it kind of like a mission for me. So um, I th- honestly think that coming into it not necessarily having a background showing and um, raising livestock, I had a, was able to look at it from an open perspective and um, in a way of where I wanted to learn more instead of just kind of carrying on traditions of what we've always done. So I think that over time, um, it's been developing relationships with exhibitors and listening to them and hearing what they want to be able to get out of coming to the fair and showing their animals and how we can improve our competitions. And I mean, I would say a big positive for us is that we are a mega fair and we do um, make a lot of money here. We're one of the only fairs in California that is self-sufficient. We don't take any state funding to run our property. We, um, make all of our own money and support ourselves completely on our own. So um, we have a healthy budget to be able to provide really good premiums for our exhibitors, which is a big draw for them to be able to come. We have low entry fees and then high premiums. So um, that really worked in my benefit to be able to kind of gear the competitions and then um, just adding different classes. And um, something really big for me was doing uh, double shows. So Um, I started doing them with rabbits first. Um, You got me into rabbits a little bit, and I started going to a couple rabbit shows outside of the fair and seeing how these rabbit shows were run, um, not from a fair side. And I noticed that you guys did double shows and triple shows. And I was like, well, if this is what exhibitors want to do and this is what exhibitors are doing year-round, how can we implement this? during the fair because it seems like it's such a a a drive for the exhibitors so um since then we've been able to partner with crcs and be able to put on double shows for your exhibitors and our entry numbers have tripled and um same thing we were able to do that with dairy goats and pygmy goats and pygmy goats was on a severe decline as well and um we've worked with another club there and they put on their own show. We just provide the facility for them. So we put on a fair show and then they put on their own show. And we've gotten a lot of exhibitors that now come from way up North that want to come down for the weekend and show their pygmy goats. So um, I think it's just been listening and really figuring out what 
what people want and also how livestock shows are run outside of fairs. Cause I think that fairs a lot of the time run their shows in a specific way that maybe the rest of the livestock industry doesn't do. So I've really tried to focus on how I can get us consistent and in line with a lot of the other shows so that it's just easy for people to be able to come. And it's just like another regular show for them that they've been showing at during the rest of the year. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And I think it's a reason why a lot of us come here because you've added extra opportunities to show. And as you said, in the rabbit and cavey community, no one goes to a single show outside of a fair. Like it's just not worth it. But to go to two or three and have the opportunity to learn, earn more legs than you would have in just one show. I mean, that's an incentive. Um, But I'm going to, you know, give you a pat on the back. Like you've done other things too. For example, this year, we don't have to park our trailers 20 minutes away and take a bus to get it or park out there every day and take a bus to go to the car. You know, you listen to the exhibitors and I'm going to tell another personal story. And I don't mean to step on anyone at Orange County Fair, but about 15 years ago, I sat in an exhibitor meeting here and it was a completely different environment. And we were told from people in your position that we should be lucky to, to be here, that we, I mean, it was, it was awful. And I didn't come back yeah. for two or three years because I said, they don't want us. I, I am grateful to be here, but I don't need to be told that I'm, that I should be grateful. And you didn't probably realize it going into this job, but you had to pick up the pieces from those meetings and you've done a great job because there's a lot of people here that didn't come back either. And they're here this year. So those things listening, you know, parking, I mean, this year we're parking our trailers and our cars 20 feet from our animals and those things make a difference. So if you were to offer advice to a a coordinator of a livestock department, or maybe someone working at a fair about listening to exhibitors, because it's not always fun because we bitch and moan, right? So how do you balance that? I mean, when I stepped into more of a supervisor position here, I, it was just a weird environment to come in and feel like I was sort of like an enemy to the people that we were trying to service. And, um, so, and it's, I like you guys and I didn't understand why it was like, oh no, this exhibitor is coming to the livestock office. Everyone buckle down because we're going to have a fight and stuff like that. And so I just wanted to like, I want, we're all here to have a good time. We're like, a lot of you guys are only here for a couple days. Like we don't want to come to work and have to fight with people. So I think it's just like really just becoming friends with you guys and, um, figuring out ways that we can work together and be able to put on a benefit for each other. Obviously we're here to service you and give you guys the opportunity to put on a competition. But on the flip side, you guys are here and providing a service for us and putting on these amazing exhibits where you guys get to showcase these different types of livestock. So I think I had to look at it in a way of how are we going to mutually benefit each other in the end where everyone's going to walk away and be happy with it. Well, I would say you've done it because um, we've missed these fairs more so than ever. And I think a lot of us are stepping back going, okay, we are very grateful, but the changes you've made this year, it's just, I like to stay another week. Like I love coming down here and it's, it's so much easier this year um, because of the changes that you've, you've listened to us, you know, and if we're all peaceful, we all can, you know, come to, to common ground. Um, the Orange County Fairgrounds is beautifully kept and decorated, and its guests are not exactly known for showing up in overalls and blue jeans, well, of course, unless they're Prada or Gucci. So how do you prepare, Dr. Miller, a livestock department for a demographic that is starkly different from the exhibitors that are bringing the animals 
to the show. Well, I think uh, just making them, you know, telling them exactly what you just said, that this is not your average fare that might be found in another state or another part of the state where, um, you know, it's out in an open space that is available and there aren't a lot of houses. We're surrounded by urban living. Uh, We're surrounded by track homes. We've got a lot of neighbors. So it's, you know, being aware of our surroundings and what it is what when we're here how we're serving the community that surrounds the fairgrounds is very important so um we just make sure that uh what we put on is eye appealing uh and attractive also very educational i'm sure that as you've walked through the livestock area um with there's a whole team of individuals who decorate the entire fairgrounds specifically in the livestock area, there's a lot of education, a lot of spots where people can walk along, um, visually appealing, but also learn a little something about different parts of California agriculture, different sectors of California agriculture, and different facts about agriculture that directly impact them. Um, So that's what I appreciate about our space and it being so visually appealing is that it's all also very educational. I mean, I will second you on that because I see people, thousands of people all day long stopping and reading those educational signs. And they're not small. They're easy to read. They're hung high. They're, they're I won't say you're in your face because that's not negative, but they are ready for you to read and people are reading them all day long. And I can guarantee you, even if they don't talk to any of us as exhibitors, they walk away a little more educated than, than, they, than they had before they, they step in the gates here at the Orange County Fair. So, and I'd love that adherence to education, which this fairgrounds does remarkably well. And then uh, you know, kind of tags it with a beautiful, well-decorated and very clean environment. Um, so maybe this is a question for you, Nick, but how do exhibitors react to pressures from from your side, from the livestock admin side, when they say, when, when you guys say like, all right, you got to clean every day, you got to clean up your stuff, you got to make it look appealing because the clientele that comes through here are not accustomed to goat poop <laughs> in the aisles. Um, how, how, maybe you've already kind of talked about it, like, you know, maybe making friends with all of us, but you want to maybe elaborate a little bit more in terms of melding those relationships and, and asking the exhibitors to keep a cleaner space and, and how you go about doing that. Um, it doesn't, beyond the relationship that we have with the exhibitors, but we have to set an expectation from just like a biosecurity standpoint and um, obviously learning a lot from some of the challenges that other fairs have had, like Del Mar in 2019 that had the E. coli um, issue. And that year we did a huge overhaul with signage and we hired extra staff to be just there to clean. And we want to make sure that this is not only a great environment for people to see animals and a great environment for animal welfare, but We also want to make sure that our guests are healthy and not going to walk away from this fair with a negative look on the animal exhibit. And like, as we saw at Del Mar, it was all pinned on animals. And that was where the E. coli was from. And the animal exhibits were the issue. And we really want to make sure that the act, livestock department and centennial farm are not looked at as dirty and somewhere where you're going to get sick and that animals are something that you should kind of be scared of and stuff like that. So, but working with our exhibitors, I think that 
I mean, over the years, we've also tried different methods of cleaning, um, whether or not that's providing dumpsters in the morning or um, dragging with tractors. And we've slowly fine-tuned our practices in order to be able to accommodate our exhibitors the best that we can while still setting an expectation of what we need to be able to provide as an exhibit department at the end of the day and um, what management expects us to put on for our guests that come and visit us at the OC Fair. Maybe this is a good question for you, Dr. Miller. On the topic of exhibitors, so from from my side, because I'm an exhibitor here at at your fair, um, how could exhibitors better reach out to upper admin at fairs, say the livestock department, when they have maybe an inquiry or a suggestion? How do you go about doing that without sounding like you're bossy and that you just want to change the world and it's all up to you and without sounding selfish, in other words, you know, how could, what would your advice be to exhibitors? Because many of our guests listening are exhibitors, whether it's at a county or a state fair or even just a livestock show. Well, I would speak for myself. I'm always, I've been like this, been my theory for a long time. Most people want, want to be heard and should be heard. Um, if I don't agree with someone, I'm not going to say I don't agree with you or that's not going to happen, but you know, uh, Every suggestion is a good suggestion, whether or not it's a suggestion that can be implemented. um, That is something that a supervisor has to bring to the administration and the people that then make those types of decisions. Um, But I would say to exhibitors, having been in charge of exhibitors myself and having suggestions, uh, go to the supervisor and say, are you open to suggestions? And if so, share those suggestions. But if they are suggestions that cause an exhibitor, and I've been in this position, that might be very passionate to an exhibitor to the point where as they're talking about it, they might kind of start to seem argumentative or hostile. Maybe write those suggestions down so that you can hand them to the supervisor or read them and have that open discussion. Hopefully you're working with supervisors who are open and willing to listen to and have an open discussion and willing to listen. Um, Letters to administration, Um, especially this year, you mentioned that your experience this year as an exhibitor yourself has been very positive. So letters to our administration, our CEO, and our board. If a fair has board members, the board members really like to receive those positives. We all receive a lot of negatives. It's the, if you get bad service, a hundred people know about it. If you get good service, one or two people might know about it. So writing those positive letters, this was a great experience this year and we hope we can continue this tradition. Um, admin and board members love to get those letters, those handwritten letters or those typed up letters with a written signature um, because they don't get those very often. You know, those the complaint department is the complaint department and is there for a reason, but it is okay to send those letters of thanks or those letters of commendation or say, these were all the things that we really enjoyed. And if you're interested, here's some other things that we would like to see changed or stay the same. We have a list this year of big changes that we had to make because of COVID, but good changes. A lot of good things came out of COVID. And we've got a list of good changes that we kind of at first, Nick and I went, oh, I don't know if this is going to... And it's really turned out to be great. So we have our own items that we're going to take to our administration and our board and hope that we can continue to implement because 
we've seen that those make our exhibitors happy. So always just going in as an exhibitor with an open mind to talk to um, the individuals that run the livestock area, and then always communicating positivity with some constructive criticism to administration and if a fairgrounds has a board to those board members as well. And I think, I think too that exhibitors have to keep in mind that a lot of times management, especially at places like the Orange County Fair where we're not in an agriculture setting, um, management doesn't really have the perspective of what we do here in livestock. I think a lot of the times they just see an animal exhibit and don't really necessarily understand the competitions and that's no fault of their own. There's a lot of other things that they have to manage and putting on a fair and a lot of other focuses. But um, I think exhibitors have to remember that the livestock department is not the only thing that uh, management and our board is thinking about at the end of the day and going up to them and trying to, help them understand where you guys are coming from as well, I think is only going to make them more receptive and more supportive of us. Because when you just come in with a lot of complaints, then that raises a lot of red flags for them. And then that trickles down to us. And then we kind of have to be putting out these fires as to, well, what's going on over there? Because they don't really understand what we really necessarily do. So um, trying to it's again, educating even the people that work here. So, And sometimes there's things that we want to change for exhibitors because there are great suggestions from exhibitors, but we don't have the ability to do that. It's, it's a stone wall. Those, those, some things are just not going to be able to change. And I, in my experience, that's going to be here at the OC fair, but that's anywhere that you go, whether it's agriculture related, fair related or not. I think we all understand that there are just some things that unfortunately we just can't make happen. So being open-minded to that knowledge as well. Well, and the misunderstanding that, uh, that Nick, you talked about with board members, you know, they may not come from an ag background yet. They're, they're essentially over upper admin. They're over livestock and the same kind of misunderstanding comes from the exhibitor side in terms of the exhibitors not really realizing that beyond complaining to you and livestock or Dr. Miller, that some of the things they're asking for then have to go to a, a much higher, higher being, you know, admin or board. And some of these things, you know, I'd like to, have, I'd like to have rabbit shows on the moon, but you know, it ain't gonna happen. And it's very similar to that. So there's a bit of a misunderstanding on both sides. So, well, let's jump back to some positive stuff and stuff. And I want to um, ask Nick about your year round job here. And one of the things that the OC fair does beyond just the five weeks of this annual fair, um, you know, talk about your job, what goes on year round in, in the heart of Costa Mesa um, on this fairgrounds. Yeah. So year round, um, we have what's called Centennial Farm, which is a three acre, um, we call it a sample of a working farm. So um, it was founded in 1989, I believe, by Jim Bailey, who was a former agriculture teacher here in the Fullerton district. Um, And he, it was his sort of dream to be able to put on this. He was also our livestock superintendent at the time. And then he carried over and was able to create this amazing facility that we have on site where we showcase various different kinds of livestock from chickens and rabbits and goats and sheep and cattle. And then we have a whole array of raised beds with a variety of different crops that we rotate throughout the year. Um, We 
it's just big on education. It's a huge community give back opportunity for us to be able to provide this facility that's we our management is definitely supportive of us and they use it as an opportunity to highlight agriculture being the 32nd agricultural district and um they really push on providing free programs for the community to be able to learn about agriculture so the big two big programs that we produce at centennial farm are what are called our junior farmer tours which is um geared towards kindergarten through third graders they get the opportunity to come to Centennial Farm for an hour and a half tour in the morning time where they're led by um, a volunteer docent. We have a slew of upwards of 100 docents that work with us during the year and provide these free tours to uh, schools. And they get to learn, go all the way, all around the farm and learn about a milking demonstration in our Millennium Barn and the difference between dairy cattle and beef cattle and the five or uh, the different plant parts that you can eat. And we have a rare fruit garden area. And um, one of the big highlights always is the piglets. And um, we definitely do breeding programs during the year and have um, springtime is always in, really impacted for us um, because everyone wants to come and see the babies. But um, all of our programs are full at Centennial Farm. We release our tour program in the fall and within minutes a lot of our slots are already full and we service upwards of 80,000 kids a year um, that come through our gates and get to tour the farm. Um, on the other program that we get to do that I spearhead is the ranch after school program. Just a little bit funny because I actually was a participant in the ranch after school program when I was in fourth grade which kind of also fostered my relationship here at the Orange County Fair. Um, it's a program where kids from six local elementary schools are bused here after school. They come two days a week and um, they get to do a variety of things. Each of the kids is assigned their own garden bed. Um, they learn about livestock. We start small with chickens and we've worked our way up to um, horses and we do horseback riding um, it's the kids all get to keep a binder. We do lessons every day and workshops and different activities. And we bring in special guests and my experience in livestock and developing these relationships with the exhibitors has given me the opportunity to actually bring in some of these exhibitors and get to do fun programs with the kids with like, um, one of our Angora goat exhibitors has come and done felting demonstrations with them and fiber dyeing and the kids get to make goat milk soap and just get an experience that they wouldn't get to do um, every day just from a regular after school program. But we're also really lucky to have the opportunity to not only um, have this program at Centennial Farm that I had, but the city of Costa Mesa a recreation department partners with us and provides recreation leaders, which typically are stationed at schools after or the local schools to watch the kids after school. But they also want to foster this program and have um, partnered with us to provide staffing to be able to help us carry out that program as well. So there's a lot of different opportunities. Um, we get kids from LA County, Riverside County that all come for our tours. Um, so we see people from all over the place that get to come and learn about agriculture here during the year. It's awesome. And I've seen it firsthand. So those kids leave here and they know that the milk doesn't come from the refrigerator, the grocery store and their sweater, their wool sweater doesn't just uh, 
come from Macy's. So I've kept you guys uh, a long time tonight, and I know it's been a long day, so I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but I do want to ask a couple more questions, um, and one from each of you. I, I'm sure that we all have our favorite fair stories, whether it's at this fair or another. Uh, Dr. Miller, do you have a favorite fair story, whether it's it's positive or negative, that uh, that maybe our guests might find a little entertaining? No, I have, I, I have a lot of stories, and when you asked that question, I was milling back and forth with, yes, positive and negative stories and interesting stories, but... Um, I guess the one that always sticks out is uh, as I would prepare my students for the fair, they would always, uh, well, they started to, not always, but they started to challenge me and my teaching partner to show with them, you know, one of those will prove that you can do what it is that you're teaching us. So we would have these little competitions. Um, Some of the parents would come down and we'd have basically what was called adult showmanship, but they didn't, we didn't have that, uh, which is fine. We didn't have that when I was teaching. And so the students weren't able to kind of sign me up for adult showmanship here at the fair. So they challenged, they started challenging me to enter something into the fair and could I actually achieve greatness as they would put it. Um, so I like to take pictures and photography. So I entered, started entering photography and, uh, one year I didn't know what was going on and the students went over to go find my pictures and they came back and they said, Mrs. Miller, you won an award. And I had no idea I was, you know, into all of what was going on. So they took a picture of it and they came back and they came to the award ceremony and they all cheered and then they you know, were telling their parents. And so their parents were going over and seeing it. So they were super proud. So every year it was this little challenging. What else could my teaching partner and I, um, as participants at the OC Fair, enter along with them? just so that we would be a part of the competition as well. And it always makes my heart happy because they, they know they knew uh, and hopefully my students still know that we're all a team and we all work together and we can all do this, but they were also so supportive of, of us and our personal participation in the fair as well. So just because you age out of FFA or 4-H doesn't mean that you can't still participate in some way, shape, or form, and make those that you've mentored proud of you and proud that you are their mentor. So it's it's always a good memory for me. That's so inspiring. And I'm sure it inspired them to want to enter themselves yes. or, or feel like they're even more part of the fair because Dr. Miller was alongside doing it too. <laughs> All right, Nick, what's your favorite uh, or most memorable fair, fair time story? Well, considering that we're in such an urban environment down here, we occasionally get the pleasure of dealing with some animal rights activist groups. And um, a lot of the time it's revolving around our market competitions that usually take place um, during the first week of the fair and our junior livestock auction. And one year we had a group of like four girls that showed up to the auction and everyone was a little bit suspicious as to what they were doing here because we have a pretty consistent group of people that show up at the auction every year and really come out to support us. So mid auction, suddenly these girls stand up and rip their shirts off and have these other shirts under them that say friends, not food and begin walking around our auction ring and chanting um, we, friends, not food, friends, not food. And not one of our buyers blinked an eye. The auctioneer didn't stop doing the bids. Bids were continued to be in place and those girls just walked out not making any impact and didn't really know what else to do with themselves. And not only did they not really make an impact, but they 
paid to be a buyer and supported our auction and um it was just an, a kind of a flop for them but i think it also goes to show that a lot of our longtime supporters that do understand agriculture know that what we're doing here is not really an animal rights activist issue and um we really take pride in making sure that we have a really comprehensive animal welfare program here and um, that all of our programs follow some strict guidelines as far as the treatment of animals. So um, that was kind of an interesting moment for us. I think it's every, every livestock coordinator's worst nightmare is to have those out there, you know, chanting or, but to drown them with positivity or, uh, irrelevance, maybe that's that's pretty powerful. And when you've got a good team and a good core behind that, that's what's going to happen. All right, one more question for each of you. Uh, we ask all of our guests who are typically rabbit or caper breeders, uh, tell us about your perfect rabbit show. Like, if you could hypothetically think about what, what they day would be like. So, Dr. Miller, what would your perfect f- a day at the fair be like? Oh, a perfect day at the fair. I thought you wanted me to say perfect rabbit show. <laughs> <laughs> not a rabbit lady just yet okay i'm not done with you yet but (laughs) don't get me wrong i love rabbits but not as knowledgeable as i would like to be about the specificities of that perfect fair um i don't know we have that's a tough question because we have beautiful weather we have fabulous exhibitors i mean the fair food is it's fair food it's so bad but it's so good um I don't know. I think a perfect day at the fair would be just everything goes as planned Mm -hmm. and we don't end a day or get, we don't end a day with a bad email or we don't have, you know, complaints in the middle of the day. Uh, It seems, I feel like I'm being sophomoric and simplistic, but just a day where we could thoroughly enjoy the beautiful weather and thoroughly enjoy our exhibitors and our shows um, and just, end that day as good as it started. So again, I feel like I'm being a simpleton, but um, that, that would be my perfect day. And honestly, we have a lot of perfect days. There's those days where, but everybody has those. So there are those days where we get that email or we get that person coming by, but we have a lot of perfect days here at the OC fair. Nick, what would be your perfect day at the OC fair? My ideal for the fair is I just love when our barns are full. I love when all of our exhibitors that entered follow through and show up with their entries and we didn't get really that many scratches and just everything looks really great and we have all of the animals on display and we can put on a great competition for you guys and um, everyone can end up going home at the end of the week having a good time. That's pretty cool and I have to say that I listen to a lot of livestock exhibitors or whether they're putting on a, at a fair, maybe a show and they're like celebrating when entries are down or so-and-so didn't show up and the scratches are there. And that, that is totally not your mentality and nor is it yours, Dr. Miller. It's filling the barns up, representing agriculture and carrying on with these traditions that have been going on for, for decades, if not, if not centuries. So um, with that, I want to thank you both for joining us today. And I really want to thank you for what you both do in one of the most challenging environments in our country to do what you do. And that's to preserve agriculture and promote people like us with whether it's small or large animals to continue doing what we do. Um, You know, we had the double KV show today out there, Nick, which you were a force behind and we would have had a double rabbit show if it wasn't for that damn RHD thing that uh, has 
been uh yeah down here in southern california but we know that we're going to get over that and there will be another double rabbit show in the future hopefully at 2022 fair here in orange county so again thank you both for what you do not only here at the fair but um for the greater livestock and small animal industry because your voice and your vision um it's it's far far greater felt than just here because we all go home bragging about you guys and what you do and and we we you know, we talk to a lot of people, so <laughs> we're lifers. All right. Enjoy the rest of your fair, guys. Thanks again for being here. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Alan, what a great interview with our hosts. It was fun to learn a little bit more about the Orange County Fair. Um, like you said in the introduction, I think that most of us don't think about that part of the country as a place with agriculture or county fairs, but it was really interesting to learn a little bit about a fair in an urban setting. Yes, I, 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 I love these guys. I mean, they are, we couldn't do what we do in California without uh, people like that. And what they do down south in Southern California, where ag is just depleted, um, is, is remarkable. And they're so smart. And they, in terms of their listening to exhibitors, you know, and like we said in the interview, exhibitors are sometimes more trouble than we think they're worth. But these guys put that aside and, and really seek out their exhibitors to say, hey, what's going on at other fairs you're going to? What's going on at your other shows that you are highlighting your your livestock or your small animals? And how can we uh, work together to entice you to come back and have a good experience? And so you tell your friends and and continue to come back. And I love what Nick said about um, his favorite fairs, which are ones where the barns are full. I mean, how many of us kind of get a little lazy when we get like a small judging lineup or if we're at a show we're like oh numbers are down it's gonna be an easy day you know but his mentality is fill those barns up let's let's make this the best show ever and let's make one so that our exhibitors or fair attendees who are walking through who really are not familiar with livestock or ag uh, so they get to see that and walk away with a positive experience about industries instead of ones that are maybe more abrasive or apprehensive or you know hostile towards what we do. It's, it's pretty cool stuff down there. Thank you, Dr. Miller. And thank you, Nick, for, for your wise words and all you do for our uh, multi-species industries in livestock and small animals. I really like that about the the barns being full, because I think for any of us who have walked into a barn at a fair, whether or not it's a species that we raise and seen just those full barns, the animals, you know, in stalls or in cages, maybe the, the bang or whatever it is, you know, the more animals that are there, the more people that are there, just the more electricity is in the inner in the air. And, you know, you can just feel the energy and it's it's exciting no matter who you are. Yeah, totally. There's definitely a vibe when the barns are full. I mean, people walk into a barn that's half full and they go, oh, where the heck are the animals? I mean, <laughs> in a long fair like Orange County, which spans five weekends, the animals don't stay there the entire time. There's constant change over every five days. So, you know, every Angora goat breeder's least favorite question from fairgoers is, where are the pigs? <laughs> but that's because, well, the pigs are here a different week. But um, And it's for the welfare of the animals that they are rotated out. Yes, indeed. Well, we'll end this with um, a little bit of education about the history of fairs in America. Fairs originated in the Middle Ages in Rome as mostly um, kind of gatherings around holy feast days, um, sometimes, you know, for merchants to gather to, to sell and trade their goods, kind of like what we see now, um, but those centered around feast days. And over time, they moved away from those religious associations and began to focus a little bit more on agriculture. 
Agriculture fairs were not a thing in the U.S. until 1807, when the first American fair was held in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and it was organized by a man named Elkanah Watson. And this very first fair, it says, was a small affair consisting only of sheep shearing demonstrations. Um, Wool, of course, being a um, product that people grew in their homes and then used for their own clothing at that time. Um, At his urging, other area farmers began to showcase their livestock at public gatherings, where they were then judged and awarded the quality of their animals. And he further developed his vision of what would become county fairs, including activities for men, women, and children, and allowing merchants to sell goods at the event. So these fairs spread throughout um, rural communities, through the Northeast and Midwest. Um, A lot of counties and towns began to hold their own fairs. And the first state fair was organized in Syracuse, New York in 1841. I think that's a venue that several of us have been to, either for that or for the New York Grand Finals Rabbit Show. Um, It was held for two days in September, and it was focused on educating those who attended about agriculture with animal exhibits and speeches. So the fair sort of started to become um, like an agricultural exposition, not only a competition, but a place where farmers and farm families could learn about new technologies and new innovations in the agriculture industry. And I think we see this kind of in other um, spheres as well. I know you know, we have heard a lot about the World's Fairs that were held sort of during this time where all sorts of technology and innovations were presented to the public. But these county and state fairs continued to focus on agriculture and all of the innovations that surrounded that. Um, pretty soon, entertainment acts began to be part of that with music performances, carnival rides, um, other sorts of entertainers and amusements, which we continue to see at fairs. Um, you know, obviously the Carnival in the Midway is a huge draw for kids and adults alike. Um, concerts are sometimes a big draw. I know that some of the very large state fairs bring in some really big name acts. Um, we have horse races. I know at the Kansas State Fair, we've had car races, which are backed up right to the rabbit barn. <laughs> Not our favorite things sometimes on show days. Um, but all these sort of things that would draw a varied group of people have become parts of our county and state fairs. Um, some of these fairs have more than a million attendees each year. Um, the State Fair of Texas is a large one. Um, the Erie County Fair in New York is another one mentioned in this article as a fair that continues to grow over or to draw more than a million attendees every year, which is really incredible when you think about it. Um, So now it seems that the big draws at fairs are the midways, the live performances, things like that. But we still do get people over to those ag areas. We still do see, as we've talked about through this whole episode, people coming through the barns, looking at the animals, learning a little bit about agriculture, learning about where their food comes from, and just kind of getting back in touch with, um, I would say, the roots of America. So um, fairs are, are continuing to proliferate, to be a popular event, and I don't think will um, cease to be part of our annual tradition anytime soon. I sure hope not, because like many of us, uh, you and you and I, and a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, and, and past and future guests, fairs were where it all began for us. And uh, you know, as as our as our audience at fairs, if they're not involved in livestock, uh, becomes a little bit more separated from us. Like this weekend, I swear, this is one of the questions we I was asked three times as I'm shearing goats in front of 
the you know the crowd um are, are you doing face paintings over here it's like, <laughs> no i'm not doing face painting have you looked at my hands <laughs> you do not want my hands on your face um <laughs> but people do come through those barns and and if a lot of people will actually stop and say we came for the midway we came for the the uh the Krispy Kreme donut with the four patties of burger sandwich between them but we really came here to see the animals and we love to see the animals because we don't have exposure to those animals any other time of the year especially in those urban environments so we are definitely doing our part and we encourage everyone to continue to support fairs whether that be as an exhibitor as a judge or those those hardworking people that put on those fairs as superintendents and coordinators and livestock staff we all work together and uh, keep doing it because uh, it is a tradition that is uh, certainly a, a big mark historically um, and personally for each and every one of us. That it is. Well, as always, we will end this episode with a quote that kind of talks a little bit about some of those organizations that led some of us to exhibiting fairs as kids. Make doing your best a habit, and you'll never know not doing your best. If you build roads, then build them Roman. Make them last 2,000 years. Dig ditches as if you were taking the state fair to win another blue ribbon for best ditches. And that's from the author Karu Papritz. Go for that blue ribbon. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us again on episode 20 of Best in Show. Tune in next week, episode 21. And as always, don't forget to like and follow The Rabbitry on Facebook to uh, have links to our past and current and future episodes of Best in Show. And as we conclude every episode... Keep talking rabbits, keep talking cavies. See you next week. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.